This is Morgan Michael, welcoming you to Kindsight 101, the podcast where you'll hear from world-renowned educational leaders about the mobilizing power of kindness, together by challenging our assumptions and venturing beyond the status quo in education, we can make a big impact, one small act at a time. Everyone in the organization has the capacity to lead. The most powerful leadership tool we have is our own personal example. How do we create environments where everybody truly can be a part of something great and quite frankly, hopefully leave their legacy and walk out of there and say, you know what, that was a great experience. And I think we have to believe we can do that because if we don't, then I'm not sure what we're doing here. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be the kind of educational leader that nurtures excellence while building a powerful sense of community? I've got another gem for you today, the one and only Jimmy Casas. In our wide-ranging conversation, we explore the biggest challenge in education, how to become a leader regardless of your title, how to delegate effectively, how to reach those tough-to-teach kids without lowering expectations, the power of second chances, and one of his top anxieties as a school leader, and finally, the magic of establishing student-centered school culture. Jimmy Casas is the best-selling author of two books, Culturize and Stop Right Now. He's a speaker and an educational leadership coach and currently serves as an adjunct professor at Drake University in educational leadership. He was an award-winning principal who served for 22 years as a school leader and is now consulting with and coaching educators, principals, and superintendents across the U.S. You can find him and more about his books on social media at Casas underscore Jimmy or online at jimmycasas.com. I just want to thank you, first of all, for joining me today on Kindsight 101. I appreciate it. And it's Morgan, right? It's Morgan, so, yeah. yeah. No, thank you so much for the opportunity. Hopefully the audio sounds okay. I'm just parked here, so I'm good to go here for a while. Perfect. So I want to start off with a pretty big question, a question that you address in your amazing book, Culturize. What do you believe our biggest challenge facing schools today is? You know, let me just preface it by saying this. I never believe that I have a monopoly on, you know, what leadership looks like or, you know, you hear all these things about experts in, in education and so forth. And I've certainly have never considered myself any of those things. I believe I'm no different than any other educator. I'm just an individual who wanted to be a teacher, who wanted to be a principal, and hopefully impact some students in some positive ways, considering one of those reasons was because I didn't have a good positive school experience. So that's kind of where I come from. But, you know, over the years, as you begin to kind of evolve and mature in this role of school leadership, you kind of start putting things together. And one of the opinions that I have that I've always felt is I think one of the biggest issues that we continue to face today and I talk about this often, is the whole idea of ineffective leadership. And when I say that, I want to be careful because I'm certainly not trying to throw my fellow colleagues and principals under the bus or superintendents or anybody who's in a leadership role. But what I'm really trying to do is challenge the thinking of people so that everyone begins to see themselves as leaders. And I do believe this, that principals today who go into this role, it's a struggle. It's a struggle to be able to have all the skill sets that are necessary and they're required to lead schools in an effective way today in 2019. And so what I've learned is that many of us who went into the principalship went in there because we kind of were fixers. Like we had ideas and 
we had a passion for it. And we had this vision how things could be so much better and that if we were just given that opportunity, we could actually do it better. So there's a little bit maybe of an ego and maybe just wanting to make a difference and whatever those reasons are. But what I learned from that was from my own personal experience was that I could not sustain that over a long period of time. Even though I thought I could, I kind of fooled myself and I got caught there. And what ends up happening, what happened to me was it just came at a heavy price. And so what we're seeing is that we're seeing a lot of administrators who are not in healthy places, right? Either physically or mentally or emotionally because they're exhausted. They're trying to do everything and lead these schools all by themselves. And I think it's unfair to do that to any individual to think that any one person can lead a school or a district or a campus. And so what I try to help emphasize when I work with school leaders and teachers is that everyone in the organization has the capacity to lead. Uh, and what we need to do is figure out, well, then what are the best ways to begin to build capacity? So teachers see themselves as leaders. How do we encourage people to take leadership roles? How do we invite them to take leadership roles? And quite frankly, how do we inspire them to take leadership roles? Throughout the book, Culturize, Jimmy refers to his four-point core values that have guided his practice as a leader. And we touch on many of these throughout the interview. So the first one is be a champion for kids. And he refers to often the three R's, which is relationship, 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 that kids really need that in order to succeed. The second is expecting excellence. So people often make the mistake of sympathizing with kids as opposed to creating a sense of empathy. And there's a real difference. And we talk a bit about this in the conversation. The third is carrying the banner. So how important it is to be speaking positively about our school culture, our district culture, creative and really positive branding solutions, and including social media. And finally, number four, being a merchant of hope, creating a sense of hope when quite often there's a sense of despair or frustration. And that really is the hard work of being a school leader, whether or not you have the title to prove it. Uh, I think that is a much more effective way. And when we all understand that we are all responsible for the culture and climate of our schools and our classrooms, every one of us plays a part in that. And uh, at least from my experience, that's what I learned. And I think we can be so much more effective when we think about it that way. I love that so much. And I think essentially what's at the crux of that is it's not one person at the top, but you're delegating to people who have a passion themselves and, and asking them to engage in the journey too. And I'd like to dig into that a little bit because you've mentioned this in your book that you don't have to actually have a title to be a leader. And I think that's a relatively new concept for me, I'd say within the last year or so to really step into this role of leadership before having that title. And it's pretty incredible what happens when you engage people and you enroll them on a journey with you and you don't necessarily have that title. So can you talk a little bit about what it looks like, what it means to be a leader and maybe some questions that we can ask when we are in that position or when we find ourselves in that position to see if we're an effective one? Well, let's begin by, first of all, kind of go back to what you just mentioned. And that is, you're right. Like, you know, what I've learned over time is that, you know, sometimes people don't really see themselves as leaders. And sometimes people would say, oh, no, no, I don't, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to take that responsibility. I don't want to lead that. But the truth of it is we always, um, well, every one of us is a leader in some capacity. So if you're a classroom teacher, well, you're certainly a leader in that classroom. 
And so I began to try to figure out why is it some people really don't see themselves as leaders and what is it that causes them to hesitate? And I think sometimes that's where the confusion happens is because we try to begin to, I don't want to say create divisions, but there's certain a separation, a certain hierarchy, right? That, that people think, well, I'm not the leader, that's so-and-so. I'm not the department chair. I'm not the grade level team leader. I'm not the, I'm not the head cook. I'm not the head custodian. I'm just, you know, I'm just a custodian here, right? As opposed to the head custodian. And so we see this happen in a lot of organizations. And so what we've learned from that is to try to understand, well, then how do we begin to build the capacity so everyone begins to see themselves as leader? And so, as you said, you know, you don't need a title or a, you know, a nameplate or a parking space. You don't even need a degree. <laughs> and so what we need to do is simply lead by example. And I always go back to the John Wooden quote when he says, uh, the most powerful leadership tool we have is our own personal example. And so when we begin to think about that and recognize that what we model is what we get, so therefore we should always be trying to model the behaviors that we want others to repeat, right? These standards and this expectation uh, that really when we think about it, we're talking about what does excellence look like in any organization and how do we reach this pinnacle where we do have cultures of excellence, where people are walking in truly believing that they can make an impact, that they can make a difference, and more importantly, begin to believe that what they do uh, is not only important, but it is, quite frankly, the most important thing. We have we have an abundance of blessings uh, as educators. So you mentioned here this whole idea of delegating. And I think that's where I began to also understand, you know, we have to be a little careful because here's the thing. Again, I'm just speaking for personal experience. And this is kind of where I dropped the ball is I went in thinking I was supposed to delegate, hmm. right, responsibilities to other people. But then I'd get frustrated, Morgan, because what would happen is that I would get delegate, but then I'd turn around and be critical to the same people I just delegated to, right? Mm. And whether that frustration was the timeliness in which they were able to complete the work or the task or the efficiency or the effectiveness or the quality of that. And so what happens is we're delegating and then we pull back and then we begin to be critical of those people that we try to empower because we we begin to think that they don't necessarily have the skills or maybe they are not as intentional or maybe they don't take the initiative, whatever it is. But I began to see it through a critical eye and there's where I kind of made a mistake. And the mistake I made is I was delegating to people, quite frankly, and that they didn't have those skill sets. Mm. So here I am trying to give empower somebody and yet I'm asking them to do something that right now in this moment is outside their scope of capacity in terms of being able to do or accomplish whatever task I'm asking to do. And so what I learned from that is, okay, well, before you delegate, Jimmy, show them what you want them to do. Show them the level of, of quality, the level of excellence. In other words, show them the standard. What is your expectation? Be clear on that. And then not only show people, but give them permission to be a part of that. But how do we then, once we build our confidence by modeling that and allowing them to see us in that role so they're very clear in terms of how we want them to do it, then we got to make sure we're coaching them through that and that we're giving feedback, that we're observing, that we're having conversations and that there's follow back. So we're circling back that we just don't say, oh, they're, they've got it now and they're going because my experience is, again, that people tend to sometimes fall back and they need more support. And so the delegation can actually work against us if we're not doing a very good job of modeling it and being clear in our expectations and more importantly, 
circling back and continuing to coach them through that process so they so they develop those skills. And that's when we begin to look at processes and frameworks and how do we create this system. And the system is important, Morgan, because we're talking about equity here. And if we don't have a system, that means some people are getting it, some people are not. Some kids are getting it, some kids are not. Some staff is getting it, some staff is not. And we create the, we begin to create almost pockets of excellence. And it's ironic that when we begin to build pockets of excellence, we actually sometimes create more divisions. Because again, there's a higher quality over here. So somebody has a third grade teacher that's excellent, another child has a third grade teacher that's good, and another person has a third grade teacher that's average, right? right. And it's not that they want to be average, it's just that we haven't invested enough in them to help them continue to grow and develop them. There's the, there's the process and frameworks, right, that sometimes we forget to put in place. And so what happens is people fall back. And even though they don't want to follow the average, they do because we administratively or in leadership have not done a good job of building um, a process or incorporating a framework that continues to grow and develop our people. Wow, that's so interesting and, and so poignant. And I, I know in your book at one point, I if I can quote it correctly, I think you said in order to decrease anxiety, increase your clarity. And that sounds like essentially a lot of what you're talking about here is, as Brene Brown would say, she says, paint what finished looks like, make it really, really clear, paint that picture too. And so part of that is having a really clear vision and then also supporting people so they gain those skills. And I just think that's so important. And since we're on the topic of excellence, I want to, I want to talk about the, there's sort of this tension between social, emotional, wellness, mindfulness, well-being, which I think is a really, really important foundation for educators, for students. But then there's also this almost like a misunderstanding that that is the same as lowering the expectations. And that's something that with these soft skills, which include knowing yourself, being mindful, being self-compassionate, you can still have a really high degree of excellence. That's what I believe. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, and again, I'm by no means an expert on this, right? And this is where, again, that, you know, people like myself or other people, we can kind of get ourselves in trouble a little bit. <laughs> I still believe that every one of us have experiences, right? And because we have those experiences, that begins to shape us who we are and how we conduct ourselves and how we interact with people and, you know, whether how we have empathy for people and how we begin to see the world and in this sense, the profession, the children we work in. Sometimes I get caught in this a little bit, right? Because I can only speak from my own personal experiences. I mean, I'm not an expert, but I just have opinions like everybody else, right? To answer your question the best way that I can, I can only talk from Jimmy Casas' experience. And my experience was this. When I struggled in school, I think the mistake that happened to me as teachers were working with me is I do believe that at times adults in this case educators felt sorry for me right mm -hmm. they felt sorry for whatever my experiences were the issues that i had struggled with the my life story whatever it was they began to feel sorry for me and what happened was in some cases not all but some cases i do believe and i know for a fact is that people because they felt sorry for me kind of lowered the expectations mm -hmm. right they kind of made excuses for me I then in turn kind of did the same thing, to be honest with you, when I became a teacher. When I started my career in Milwaukee Public Schools, I sometimes would feel sorry for kids and I would kind of give them a pass. 
And then I realized that what I was really doing was kind of lowering the expectations. Hmm. And I shouldn't do that, that I should maintain the same expectations for all kids. But yet I had to be more empathetic and understanding that, well, they just might require some different strategies, some more time. I might need to try some things differently. I may need to give them more time. I need to be a little bit more flexible. You know, all these different things when we begin to look at individualized students and their learning, that I do think we shouldn't be individualized. And because I think every child is different and we shouldn't be saying, well, this is the way it is and this is what it's going to be for every kid. And it kind of goes back to what's fair, what's equal, and all these conversations that people get into. So what I learned from that was hold all kids to high expectations. And sometimes, because I think educators truly care about children, and they want them to be successful, I think we begin to sympathize. And sometimes the, the danger of that is we could lower the expectation and we should never do that. Right. Because the reality of it, what happens is, well, who falls into that category? Well, honestly, children of color, children mm-hmm. in poverty, children with special needs, children who are identified potentially as more at risk or whatever happens to be the case. And, you know, we need to maintain a, a, the same standard. Because when we do that, then what we're saying is we believe you can learn also at that high level, mm. even even with all this other stuff you have going on. But then we have to be really empathetic and then provide more support and resources to level the playing field. That's fantastic. I, I love that because I think that's that's such an important piece. I want to talk a little bit about what happens when we do lower the bar. So I know that when you, or my understanding is that when you were in middle school, you lost confidence throughout your high school and even into your university career. You had a really difficult time applying yourself specifically, I think through reading and writing and which is now looking back on it, I know that your writing experience wasn't exactly easy. It was challenging, but you have become an author of two books. You're speaking all the time. Many people follow and respect your work. I just think it's such an incredible story. But you actually had a, a coach that quit on you when you had reached a point when you had sort of become so frustrated. Can you talk about that time and and what it taught you about those kids? Oh, my goodness. That's a whole life story right there, Morgan. Right there. Be careful with the questions you're asking me. So it's funny. I just had this conversation with somebody today is that, first of all, let me just say this. I don't begrudge any teacher or any coach in terms of the experiences I had. I still believe that when teachers go into the profession, they do the very best they can. If any of us looked at what we did 15 to 20 years ago, some of us would be horrified <laughs> at some of the ways and some of the things we did. Mm. I think if we look at today, even though today I think I'm doing some things right, I'm not so sure 10 years from now, I don't look back and think, I'm not sure I was right then either, right? Because I think if we're always evolving and learning, you know, we're getting new information, we're having different experiences. I think people should have a permission to change their mind and say, you know what, I used to think that way, but guess what? I don't think that way anymore. Mm -hmm. But at the time, it was what I believed, right? For whatever reasons. And so, so I say that because when I look at my baseball coach, I mean, I don't begrudge him. He, He did the best he could. Jimmy had been a 17-year-old leadoff hitter on his varsity baseball team until an injury took him out of the lineup. Upon returning, he didn't get as much playing time as he had hoped. Frustrated, he decided to quit. Instead of pushing Jimmy to persevere, his baseball coach came to the door, picked up his uniform, and left. It was devastating for Jimmy. Certainly at the time as a 17-year-old, I'm disappointed because, as I said, what I wanted him to do was to talk to me was to assure me that it was okay to help 
to convince me that, hey, I know how you feel. I felt that way, right? In other words, just talk to me, empathize with me and and sit down and, and, and be my champion. Don't give up on me. Don't quit. But for whatever reason, he didn't have those skills. So what he did is he was disappointed. He grabbed my uniform and turns around and walks away, right? And I'm devastated because I didn't want to quit, Morgan. You understand that, right? Mm-hmm. But I convinced myself I did. And what I wanted him to do was reach out to me and say, no, I don't want you to quit. I'm not going to let you quit. Mm. You're, you and I are going to work through this. I'm going to sit down. And, and that's what I learned. But I do think that eventually helps me become a better coach, right? Because I can empathize with that. I can empathize with a kid who's not getting playing time, right? But I still think most of these issues are in terms of communication, how we communicate with kids, whether we build a culture where every kid truly feels that we care about them. And if we do, then we're having conversations. And because we're invested in them, we almost kind of know emotionally where they're at. And we're able to hopefully navigate that in a more effective way by having better conversations that are more caring, meaningful, and that the child or the student or the player or whatever truly believes we care about them. Well, the same thing happened to me when I got to seventh grade, because again, I don't begrudge that seventh grade teacher who got frustrated with me, who was tired of me disrupting class every day. But again, when I'm 12 and 13 years old, I'm not sure we can put that on me, but people do, right? Because they get frustrated. They're not sure exactly how to handle somebody like me. So eventually one day they get tired and this is literally three weeks into the school year and calling the assistant principal and saying, hey, this young man is causing all sorts of problem and I'm tired of him and you need to move him out of here because he's disrupting the learning and et cetera, et cetera. And so then the assistant principal who thinks, well, geez, I'm supposed to support my teacher and, and I need to show her that I'm, I'm supporting her. He removes me, puts me in an in-school suspension room and there I stay the rest of my entire seventh grade career. Wow. I don't even have language arts as a seventh grader. Well, think about that. If I don't have an entire year of seventh grade language arts, right, and I was already a slower reader in elementary school for many reasons. In the book Culturize, Jimmy writes in detail about three factors that can either propel or inhibit student success in school, connection to one another, feeling of capability, and a sense of confidence. As educators and leaders, we have a tremendous potential to make impact on these three factors for kids. The bottom line is, is that I completely lose confidence. I go into high school, I'm not prepared, I'm not ready, I don't have those skill sets, and therefore I lose confidence. Right. And I think when kids and adults lose confidence, they no longer feel capable. And certainly, if we don't feel connected, then we just kind of lose our way. And uh, and that's kind of what happened to me. So it affects me my entire life because, of course, I go to college and you know what happens when you're taking literature courses or you're taking composition or whatever your class you're taking. I'm struggling because I don't have those skills. I can't read. I can't write. I can't comprehend. I can't not at the level we need to compare to my peers. And so therefore I'm being already graded and I'm not doing well and I'm failing and all those things. And therefore you just kind of lose confidence and think, you know what? I'm not college material. College isn't for me. I should just go back to work, et cetera, et cetera. And there it begins. And so luckily I had people who did champion for me. I had a lot of people who continue to work with me and I had a lot of professors and a lot of teachers who were willing to continue to invest in me and help me. But ironically, even once I become a principal, one of the, one of the biggest struggles I had, one of my biz, biggest anxieties was ever writing anything to my staff or to my parents or my community. Cause I was nervous that my writing wasn't very good. 
Wow. And so I had to reach out to people to edit, to look at it. I remember going to my English teachers and saying, would you mind looking at this? Because almost almost sheepishly, right? Like I'm embarrassed. Like, excuse right. me, aren't you the principal? Shouldn't you be out where I'm going to write? <laughs> but it's embarrassing to give somebody some writing and turn it back and say, yeah, I kind of cleaned it up for you and realized I didn't even write most of this, right? <laughs> but what you learn over time is hopefully you become a better writer. And, uh, and then of course, you know, that leads into eventually just getting the opportunity to write a book and, and to rebuild my confidence. And, and I always give credit to George Kuros because, you know, I think he said it best when he just said, dude, just write like you talk. Nobody cares. Right. You know, we're writing blogs. You've got a message. You've got a story. You need to share that story. And in this world, people want to hear you, not some fluff or not. You know, again, when I'm not being critical, there are people who are amazing writers and when I read there's a lot like I wish I could write like that right because I know I don't write like that but I know this that there are people who's you know my writing resonates with them and, and that makes me feel good because I feel like I've helped them or I've made a difference or hopefully I've made an impact absolutely and what great advice to write like you talk I think that's the kind of advice that really helps students too when they're stuck right it, you don't have to try to be perfection you just have to tell your story and share an idea I want to talk about second chances I know that you've had a few of those in your life and some significant people in your life who have given you second and maybe even third chances and you've gone to pay it forward I think about that student Ben in your class can you can you tell maybe a little bit about some of the people or or any of the people who might have been that for you and then maybe how you were able to translate that in your own practice as a leader yeah I mean I think my whole life is full of second and third chances right because the reality is um you know I just wasn't a very good student so you know I look at my own personal experience and I and, and I know this like I know in my heart I'm a really good person like I feel like I've always been that, a good kid but I also know that I lost my way a lot of times and and sometimes because of losing confidence or believing I couldn't do the work or truly just confused right just confused in general like even growing up I remember like I don't even know what I am am I Mexican am I white and what am I right and my parents grew up like obviously in an era of mainly the you know the late 40s and 50s right right well for them they had one way of living and they were you know they they were called names and they were told they couldn't speak their language and but one of the things they always said to me Morgan was anything bad that happened to me or if I didn't make a team or I didn't play enough or I didn't get enough good enough grade my parents would literally tell me it's because you're Mexican. I mean, they would literally tell me this, right? Wow. And in their world, they believed it, right? Because this was their life growing up that they were discriminated against, right? People did make decisions based on the color of their skin. People did make the decisions because they were truly Latino and they came from migrant families and they were migrant workers themselves. And so when you grow up that way, you can fall trapped in that, right? I mean, these are my parents telling me this. Well, of course I'm going to believe them, right? At that right. age. And it wasn't until later I was able to look back and say, you know what, Mom, I'm not so sure everything bad that happens to me in my life is because I'm a Mexican, right? <laughs> and so you just begin to kind of figure those things out. And so because of that, though, as I grew up, yeah, I was messing up a lot and making some poor decisions. I don't think they were terrible things, but certainly I could have made better decisions, whether it was about my academics or it was about how I behave and you know, the way I treated people sometimes and those types of things. Because I was immature, I was bitter, I had a chip on my shoulder, I was angry. I mean, I can go on and on with all these reasons. But at the end of the day, I had people that were giving me opportunities because I think they saw something in me. They saw certainly a potential. 
I think they saw a kind heart. And so I think all those things molded me as I became an educator and starting my, you know, my, my career in, the, in Milwaukee Public Schools. It's funny because I went there to work with students that were challenging, right? I wanted to help kids that were kind of like me that had lost their way. I thought I could help them. I had something to offer. And yet, honestly, six weeks into my career, I was already ready to quit. I like, <laughs> felt like I was in way over my head. Right. But I had mentors like a Larry Leonard and a Dr. Dan Donder and a Bill Andrikopoulos and these people that, that helped me become a better educator and quite frankly, just a better person. Right. They helped me navigate the understanding that, look, you have to build relationships with our children or you will never be an effective instructor. You, you, you just won't be. They, if they won't trust you, if they don't trust you, you'll never reach them. At one point, Jimmy Casas had a really amazing assistant principal named Kelly Morgan who went to bat for him essentially at a time when he was just about to be expelled for bad behavior. This principal made a real difference in his life in a way that his baseball coach just never did. And in the book, he talks later about Ben, who's a student that Jimmy gave a second chance to. And something that stood out for me was what he said to Ben. And he said, you are not going to be the last Ben that comes to me wanting another chance. And I need you to give me hope to keep believing in kids when they come back asking for second and third chances. And I think that that gave Ben the accountability he needed to follow through on his promise. As a result of Jimmy's leadership and guidance, Ben, who had actually been right on the cusp of being kicked out of school, actually graduated. And in the book, Jimmy describes this as a very, very proud moment. And so I had to begin to change the way I began to work with kids and having my own experiences, I wanted to be better for them. I wanted to uh, be able to make an impact. And yet, even then, there was days I still got frustrated and lost my way. But I tell people all the time, I want my first 12 years back, right? Because I did the best I could. But, it, you know, obviously, it wasn't good enough. I can't keep beating myself up. All I can do is try to be better again tomorrow. And that's what I'm going to try to do. And that's how I, you know, I've tried to live my life really, you know, certainly the last 15 or 16 years. So, to me, it's second and third chances. I believe kids deserve that. I believe adults deserve that too. A lot of your philosophy around, you've got this four core leadership framework, and that seems like the being a merchant of, of hope part where you talk a lot actually about forgiveness and then the picking up the pieces. Can you take us through maybe just a few little elements of what that means and how do we pick up the pieces when we have screwed up or maybe even just to repair a relationship? Yeah, I think first of all, we just can't, be taking things personally and that's harder to do i mean it's easy to say but it's harder to do right yeah because i think i mean first of all we're human we've got feelings we get our feelings hurt we get wounded but i do think if we can work and understand and begin to well how do i process that and how do i work through that because i do think when we get hurt our feelings hurt we do respond differently i think we 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 take a different tone towards things and begin to respond in ways and i think what happens is we kind of almost become someone that we don't even like, right? Like, I don't want to respond that way, but I'm upset now. And therefore, I feel justified in fighting back. Where I matured is I just quit taking things personally. I know it isn't about me. And I think when we can separate that a little bit and see things a little bit more objectively rather than subjectively, I think already it puts us in a different place. So here's an example. You know, it's interesting how administrators and educators, teachers or whatever, sometimes we can be really good with other people's kids, right? Because they're not our children. We're not as emotionally invested in a, in a conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, we can watch a kid, another student or another child have an interaction with a parent 
and not not get all emotional about it because we look at it and view it from an outside perspective. Mm -hmm. But yet we can go in back into our own homes and we get very frustrated with our own children. We get disappointed. We get frustrated. We get angry at them. Right. Why? Because you feel like, well, they're my kid. I'm going to treat that child differently because I can because they're mine. I mean, I think this is just part of sometimes for some people, their way of thinking. Okay. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I learned was I think one of the best ways to earn credibility is to apologize to kids because I don't think kids are used to that on a day-to-day basis and expectations. I think a lot of kids based on my experience view the adults that the adults always think they're right. (laughs) And because they're older and because they have experiences, sometimes those adults respond in ways, for example, they may pull rank, which means I'm the adult, you're the child, do what I tell you to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's because we think we're adults that we know more. Well, the truth of it is, is sometimes we are not always right. Because if we can say to a student, you know what, I'm going to tell you right now, I was out of line and I feel badly for that. And I'm so sorry. And I hope you can forgive me. I think earns us credibility because children are not used to hearing that often from adults, right? For us to own that. And so I think what happens is it builds an immediate trust. It models the kids that guess what? I can also mess up. I also need to ask for forgiveness. And more importantly, I think even one other thing that's even maybe stronger is when we're able to forgive, right? I think we're, it's easier for us to ask for forgiveness than it is to forgive others who have wronged us. Mm. And so that's, to me, the ability to let some of that stuff go so we don't continue to carry that. I do think that picking up the pieces for me always meant, and I learned this from my mentor, is that's really just the circling back, right? It's the follow-up. And it's also able to go back to to have another conversation to begin to continue to show kids that, look, I wasn't upset at you. This isn't personal. I'm not angry at you. I'm still going to be your champion. Yes, I didn't like your behavior. I didn't like your decisions. But I also know that, listen, this is a growing opportunity and I'm going to stick with you. Because, Morgan, if you think about kids who've gone through our system, how many times have kids heard we care about you, we love you, we won't let you fail, you can be whatever you want. But I think what we forget sometimes is we kind of forget to tell them, well, as long as you comply. Right. And I think that comes with a condition, right? Because some kids have learned that, yeah, what well, you say those things, but as soon as I misbehave or as soon as I'm disrespectful or as soon as I don't do what you ask me to do, then I don't feel like you love me the same anymore. Like you get frustrated with me, you yell at me, you send me out of the room, you write a referral, you call my parents, whatever. You know, you don't care about me as much as you care about these other kids who are always doing everything you tell them to do. The way I was doing it was not effective and it wasn't working. But what I was doing was blaming everybody else. Right. And what I wasn't doing, and that's where culturized comes from, Morgan, it's it's not me seeing the culture through my eyes. It's actually seeing the culture of our classrooms or our schools or our campuses through the eyes of the students, the staff and the parents. And to me, that makes a much healthier culture because we're seeing it through other people's eyes. Uh, It's not through my eyes that matters. It's how I see it through their eyes. I'm so glad that you brought that up, actually, because you mentioned in one of your interviews that when you arrived at at Bettendorf High School, am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you are. That it was actually a quite a high performing school and that from the outside, it, it seemed very successful. You mentioned that it was, but that it was mostly teacher centered. So What does it look like to be a leader and push a school more into a student-centered arena? Because I think that's where the real excellence comes from. That's where the sense of culturized, in my understanding, comes from, is this ability to 
yes, it's working accordance to the in accordance with that compliance model and the vision of the adults, but bringing it more into the student vision is the tricky part. Can you t- speak to that briefly? Yeah, so definitely Bettendorf uh, was a high-performing school, is a high-performing school, had a great reputation, a great t- tradition. I was honored to have the opportunity to be the principal there. I was shocked when I was given the job because it was like a dream job for me. Hmm. And I have to tell you, I was so excited about that. And I I owe a lot to that community. And I owe a lot to that school district, right, for many reasons. But definitely when I walked in, you have to understand that I grew up near that community. And everybody in the surrounding area had always looked up to Bettendorf as the school district, right, as the one that we wanted to emulate. And so when I got there as the principal, I had all these expectations. And maybe I don't know what I was expecting, but I guess I was expecting to walk in and go, wow, right, to everything. And that certainly wasn't the case, right? Definitely they were good. They were very good. But in my opinion, they weren't excellent. But they had every uh, opportunity to be there. But I think what was holding them back, and I have no problem sharing this because I shared this with my staff, is remember, they only know what they know. And because they were successful and because kids were performing at high levels, because we had, you know, really good graduation rates and good test scores and, you know, we're sending kids to the best colleges, all this stuff, it's easy to fall into the trap of saying, well, we're good enough. So it was my job as the principal to show them what excellence could look like, not from their perspective, from the perspective of actually showing them to them so they could understand that we could be so much better. And that was the challenge to make that shift from an adult-centered culture, as you mentioned, where when you walk in, the decisions are being made by adults for adults. Well, in that community, demographics were changing, and we had to understand what you've been doing is good, but we need to be great because our population's changing, our demographics are changing, we have more poverty coming in, we have more challenges coming in, and if we think that, hey, I'm gonna keep doing the things the way I've always done it, and it's not my responsibility, it's those kids' responsibility, I think we all lose in the end. They really were able to make that shift. And I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of, that people could come into our school, a large school by standards of Iowa, 15 to 1600 kids and say, wow, this doesn't feel like a large school. It has a really small school feel to it. I love the way the adults interact with the kids. I love the way the kids interact with the adults. I love the way the adults interact with one another. But more importantly, I love the attitude and the mindset that they're here for kids first and they know that. And again, like any other school, Morgan, every school has its average, every school has its issues, but how do we create an environment where people truly believe that it doesn't have to be that way and that they'll never accept average as the standard, Mm -hmm. that they always believe they can get better and they know that it has to start with them changing their ways in order to impact kids in a positive way because at the end of the day, we can never put that on kids. That is on us as the adults to create the culture and climate in which we want to serve those kids. That is our responsibility to serve our students and our parents in positive ways that truly believes, as you mentioned, do we believe all kids want to be great or not? I hope we do because I've never met a child who wanted to be a failure, but I've met a lot of kids who give you the impression they want to, and it's no different for adults. How do we create environments where everybody truly can be a part of something great and quite frankly, hopefully leave their legacy and walk out of there and say, you know what? that was a great experience. And I think we have to believe we can do that because if we don't, then I'm not sure what we're doing here. Right. Wow. Three rapid fires in a couple of words or less. What does kindness mean to you? Well, we can go by the golden rule, treat other people how you would want to be treated. But more importantly, why don't we just treat the people the way they want to be treated? 
And what one skill or superpower does an educator need to lead with in order to be effective? I always say lead with passion. And finally, what one quote would you print on one of those quote cups that could be sold in bookstores around the world? Mm, That's a good one. I could go lots of different ways there. But why don't we go with inspire others to be more and do more than they ever thought possible? Jimmy Casas, where can people find you online? Uh, We can start with the website at jimmycasas.com. We can certainly go to Twitter or Instagram or Voxer. All the same handle, Casas underscore Jimmy, or on Facebook at Jimmy Casas Culturize. Perfect. Jimmy Casas, I just want to thank you so much for allowing me to sit down with you and have this conversation. I am so inspired and loved reading your books. I, you have so much wisdom in there, so I really encourage people to pick it up. Thank you, Morgan. I feel very honored, blessed. Thank you so much for taking the time. And it means a lot to me that you reached out. I'm glad we were able to connect tonight. And I feel like I have a a new friend. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I want to thank you for the wonderful reviews that you've left for this podcast on iTunes. Your reviews make a big difference in helping other educators find this show. If you think that I'm doing good work here and you'd like others to get inspired and join our 21 day kindness challenge and movement, I'd love it if you would take a minute, head over to iTunes and leave a review. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Kind Sight 101, the podcast. For links to resources mentioned in this episode, visit smallactbigimpact.com and click on our podcast and choose this episode number. Now, I'd love to give my audience a heads up about my new book, which will provide ideas, actionable strategies, and inquiry-based approaches to creating kinder classroom through serving the community. Subscribe to my blog for more information. Now, I would love to hear from you. What's the biggest insight that you gain from this conversation? Head over to our website, smallactbigimpact.com, leave a comment on our podcast page, or tag and connect with us on social media with the hashtag smallactbigimpact to share your inspiring story of kindness. Can't wait to hear from you.